Good morning. I said to BJ, how did you get a picture of me up there? I, I, that picture that he grabbed actually looks like my second or third grade picture. I was like, that's a little weird. Um, do you remember um, that as a kid, you were either the type of kid who feared everything? Uh, you always let others jump off the slide or the swing first. You let others climb the, the, to the tree, the highest part, or you watched while others tried new things. Or you were the type of kid that jumped first, climbed to the very top of the tree, or you approached every activity like a daredevil because you really weren't afraid. Well, you may have been unafraid because you were unaware of death or being hurt. On Palm Sunday, the staff at CC Kids made our lessons about Jesus's trial and crucifixion. Now in preschool, they went through the cross, but they really focused on Easter. For the elementary school kids, we made a sort of seven stations of the cross. Now we had these stations that explained uh, what happened and a paper bag that hid, hid some things in it that helped reveal uh, more of the story, make the story more tangible or concrete. So like when Simon of Cyrene had to carry his cross, we had them carry a 10 pound uh, you know, uh, dumbbell weight uh, when there was two thieves, we asked them to chew on a Sour Patch Kid, and the bitterness was the unrepentant thief, but when they got to the sweetness, it was the repentant thief. And so it, on and on it went. Now, remember those two type of kids, I said. We still have those same kinds of kids today. Some are very willing to listen but hesitated on touching, tasting, and carrying what was in the bags before other kids did. But we also have those other kids who, after finishing this crucifixion scene, this one particular one, I hear this one child say, can I have a nail? At, at first, I ignored him, and as we, I just sort of let, let's move on to the next station. Well, shall we? We'll just leave that bag right there, right? Once that station was done, I hear, can I have a nail now? <laughs> I turned and I'm like, why? And, and, I, and then we sort of moved on to the next station. After each station, this little voice would say, can I have a nail now? He was obsessed with these nails. Maybe the nail was just a nail, but I began to wonder if he was experiencing a sort of angst. Maybe the angst with the idea of the suffering of Jesus, and he just couldn't articulate it well. It was a sort of anxiety or fear around the idea of suffering and of death. Maybe if he could just hold it, feel it, or even poke with it, which I suspect was actually closer to the truth, he could conquer this niggling fear. I have no idea what's wrong with this. The truth is, daredevil or hesitator, we all share one fear, and that's the fear of suffering. So today I'm introducing a new sermon series called The Weight of the World, Living Intercession. We are excited because it's going to call us deeper into the life of Jesus, asking, what does suffering accomplish? Like the kids in CC Kids, you may not recognize that niggling fear of suffering because we've created other ways to distract ourselves. 
Well, that's okay, we'll be exploring that a bit, but we will also be exploring Jesus's own suffering, which was more than just good theatrics so that they could make the passion movie uh, more realistic. Or it's more than just making us feel really bad about our sin. Or it's, it's more than just making his sacrifice even worse. No, there's something deeper than that, and, and we don't wanna miss it. Jesus' suffering has everything to do with breaking the grip of fear. As today's title indicates, the suffering savior is the very way God intended to change the world. So would you stand with me as we read from Luke's gospel? Now, we get to this point at the end of Luke's gospel and there's these two followers of Jesus and they're walking away from Jerusalem and they're they're just hearing these rumors um, that Jesus was missing from the tomb. So we start in Luke 24, verse 13. That same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began working, walking with them. But God kept them from recognizing him. So here's these two uh, guys walking, and they're obviously very confused about the stranger who had not heard anything about Jesus' death or these rumors of his resurrection. So they begin to explain that Jesus' plan seemingly failed. Like Jesus, the Messiah, that what they thought was the Messiah, actually somehow it didn't seem to work out. And it didn't end their fears of the Roman rule or, his, or their occupation. Then Jesus said to them, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe that all of the prophets wrote in scripture Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Father God, we are here today um, expecting your word to come alive in us. We ask your Holy Spirit to work in us and through us and through this message to help us uh, hear the things that are calling us to follow you more deeply. Open our hearts and our ears in ways that may be unexpected. Maybe it actually undoes some things that, uh, for us that have been cemented in place that we need shaking. Or maybe it helps us cement uh, the truth of who you are deeper in our souls. So Father, we come to you this morning, we come to your word expecting that you will speak to us, and we are grateful for what you're about to say. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So you may be seated. So our question from our scripture is, really, what was so hard to believe? The scripture said that Jesus, uh, that Jesus probably was referring to when he was teaching these guys uh, came from the Psalms and the prophets. Psalm 22 says, but I am a worm and not a man. I am scorned and despised by all. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and they shake their heads. And then there's a bunch of passages in the prophet Isaiah that that talk about this too. I offered my back to those who beat me 
and my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mockery and spitting. And then in 52, see, my servant will prosper. He will be highly exalted, but many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. And then from chapter three, at 53, it says, he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with the deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care, yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. He poured himself out to death. And then the prophet Zechariah says, they will look on me whom they have pierced and mourn for him as for an only son. So not only these scriptures are describing the savior that God would be sending, Jesus himself points to them and says, have you not seen me live these out? In fact, he embodied suffering throughout his whole life. He suffered as a child when his family had to flee to Egypt and live apart from their community, hiding from the tyranny and the vengeance of Herod. He suffered under his own family when they didn't believe who he was and they rejected him and they tried to seize him. He suffered under the crowds when they didn't believe in him and under the religious leaders when they rejected and mocked and worked against him. He suffered emotionally when he wept over his people. When he saw Jerusalem, he wept bitterly because of their unbelief. He also wept bitterly when one of his friends died. And he was emotionally crushed when even one of his own disciples betrayed him. He suffered physically when he was beaten and whipped and crucified, but he also suffered shame and mocking and the death of a criminal like one rejected, but at every level of society. The reason that this suffering was so hard for the disciples to believe was because they had a fear of suffering because it was associated with a social stigma. They couldn't or wouldn't believe that God would use suffering and death to win a victory. Suffering was a telltale sign that God was against you. That as an individual, God had somehow judged you. Those who were blind, the lepers, the sick, those possessed by demons, those who couldn't walk or actually be in community because of some sort of illness, they were to blame for their own sickness and disease. They believed that somewhere down their past ancestral lines, somebody had done something wrong. They feared suffering because it stigmatized them and their family line. This stigma was an ultimate rejection. It was deeply shameful. 
to be seen as an outcast, to be not in. See, their identity was completely wrapped up in either being clean or unclean, in or out, following God's will or being out of God's will. And it was all based on their outside circumstances, what it was looking like for them. The idea of perfection to the law or to customs and traditions was the highest value because this perfection to the law looked like more than self-preservation. It looked like everything was okay with them and God. Their acceptance and value in their community was the outward appearance of perfection. End of story. That's how they were judged. So for Jesus to suffer and to die, that was the ultimate stigma and rejection. You actually can't be a suffering savior. It's antithetical to the way that they thought of God and to their way of life and to how they saw the world. They were culturally enslaved to this fear of suffering. But that was then. This is now, and we're different, right? Do we stigmatize suffering at all? I think we know what the truth is, right? While we may not say we have a fear of suffering, suffering does carry a stigma. But... Somehow, we've redesigned it, renamed it, and sanitized it. So many of us have suffered mentally, physically, emotionally for years, but we remain silent for the fear that we will be stigmatized somehow. Instead of facing up to the fact that us or we in our own suffering or others around us having suffering, we are afraid because it's a stigmatism about being afraid of suffering. We try to remedy it with various coping mechanisms. Suffering is supposed to not touch us. So we sanitize it. Uh, suffering is often hidden from our society um, because we, we sort of like say things like, well, if you're sick, go get help, right? If you're suffering, take a pill. If you're suffering, go to a place like a hospital or a facility that will help you and specialize in that suffering. What that does is it separates those who are suffering from those who are not. In a way, it's a sanitized version because we don't have to see suffering people every day. We don't usually walk down the street and realize so many people are suffering because they've sort of been put aside. And so if you do chronically suffer, if that's sort of a normal thing for you, you're also told it's not polite to mention it. So we don't always see suffering as purposeful either because suffering is about limits, right? So either we sanitize suffering and we say we don't, are not supposed to talk about it or you're supposed to just take something and that will fix it, or we say... Suffering is not purposeful, so I shouldn't talk about it because then it limits me. Everyone will think I'm limited. And as a cultural, we don't like limits. We fear suffering and death for that matter because it robs us or we think it robs us 
of our self-esteem. See, we're selfish. It's not news to us. Um, But it's not that sort of selfishness that it's like um, you're selfish and you didn't share your toys today sort of selfishness. It's a selfishness that doesn't see our own identity in the right way. It's a selfishness that is dependent on what I do or what I accomplish or what I achieve or how I'm perceived or what others think of me. It's self-focused. And we wrap it up in really pretty containers like on social media or on the ads or our magazines or our TV shows. We don't recognize it because instead of calling it selfishness or self-focus, we call it self-care or getting better or being successful or having great achievements, right? The measurement of a good and healthy, successful life is what we're after. Now, I'm not saying we're not supposed to work for our basic needs or anything like that, but in many cases, selfishness has been rebranded and focused as a way to be successful and to gain self-esteem. So while we don't fear suffering on a day-to-day basis, per se, we certainly fear the shame of failure. Americans fight against the fear as we talk about all that we need to get done on a regular basis. When you say to somebody, how you doing, usually their first response is, great, I'm so busy, right? The focus is always on what we're getting done. When a person is suffering, it limits what they can get done. And so they feel bad or we feel bad. Take the language of excellence, right? Our companies, our schools, our sports, we always focus on excellence. Be excellence. We want excellence in this company. Um, But there's this hidden lie behind that demand. It's It's a lie that somehow we are asking you to be superheroes or gods. Because superheroes and gods are immune to anything, any type of suffering that will limit them from achieving more, getting more, going further. The pursuit of excellence is a form of this fear because it plays on our insecurities of not being good enough or just being average or, God forbid, being normal. Could you do a normal's day's work, right? This pursuit will always cost us something as well. So when we're pursuing excellence, what we're doing is we are stealing resources and energies from other areas of our lives. We're borrowing it from our families, their time. We're borrowing it from our own time. We're even borrowing it from God's time with us. In order to get ahead, we have to steal and cheat and borrow energy and and resources from others. We are finite creatures. I know we see tons of movies all the time about being supermen or wonder women, but that's not who we are. 
Sometimes I think this pursuit of excellence actually leads us into more sin. It leads us into a self-focusedness where we do have to cheat and steal and rob others of their time and their resources. We don't care about what's happening with them because we're focused on what's happening with us. Statistics show that today's generation of kids have inherited this fear tenfold. To be perfect, to be a hero, to be the winner, to be the best, to be excellent at school, sports, and your social life, to be popular and to be well-liked, it's impossible. Kids are not superheroes in training. They are finite too. But ultimately, the fear of suffering removes us from the ability to love. We can't love others when we're stealing their energy and their resources. We can't love others when we're too busy trying to do our own thing, create our own kingdoms, accumulate what we all need for ourselves to be our own superstar it leaves no time for others. We can't love when we're outdoing, outrunning, outachieving the next person or trying to be perfect. Suffering reminds us of our finiteness. It reminds us that we are human. Now there's this great word, and it's a Greek word, and it's the word kenosis. And it comes from a passage in Philippians. And it means to empty or to pour out, sort of like you know, pouring out water from a vase. It, it's to divest oneself of rightful dignity by descending into an inferior condition. Philippians 2 reads, let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interest of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus emptied himself. He chose suffering and death, even though he could have opted out of that, because his suffering was meant to accomplish something. It was meant to lead us through our own fear of suffering. It was meant to break the power and the stigma of this fear. See, Jesus knew his reality. He knew he was God, right? He did not need to beg, grasp, own or, or possess anyone else's resources or energy. He did not fear disposition or loss or the loss of a sti- or, or, or the stigma of being mocked and despised and cast aside. He did not fear looking like a failure or a loser. None of this motivated him. Jesus was motivated by love. Jesus embodied love. Not only did he embody suffering for humanity's sake, he also embodied this love, a real love that laid down his life for others. Laid and put aside his own prerogatives, his own rights, his own privileges for the other. 
So Jesus' suffering somehow is both this symbol and reality. It's a symbol of what's to come in this kingdom. His suffering is meant to accomplish something for us and for the world. It's supposed to do something, but we don't always see it right now or yet or even quickly in our own future. But the reality is that Jesus' suffering is now framed as a victory over the fear of suffering. Instead of a stigma, it's framed as a victory over suffering. It's over shame, over humiliation. They no longer hold power because Jesus was a sort of daredevil and went first. He went through it first. And now we're free to follow. That's easier said than done, right? If we could live into what Jesus did through his suffering so that we had no more fear of suffering, how would it change the way you lived today? If you no longer had that fear, would it change the way you live today? So over the next couple of weeks, um, we are going to be challenged to follow Jesus into the suffering as living intercessors, right? Those who stand in the gap. Intercession involves standing in the gap for others, and we're gonna explore that week after week, so it's important to sort of stay within this uh, series. You'll wanna see how that actually uh, builds on each other. When we step into God's kingdom, suffering loses its power over us. This victory happens even before our own physical death. So we're not talking about waiting and suffering and suffering and then dying and being like, well, that's, that's that, that's it. It actually happens before our own physical death because Jesus' embodiment of suffering, suffering that led him to death, is also the suffering that led him to resurrection. Resurrection is a promise that no matter what we face in this moment or in the next moment or in the moment after, we can experience liberation from our fear. We can live into resurrection each and every day. Because this victory means that we have already died to ourselves and we are freed from that fear. That fear of suffering no longer has the power over it, and it can be exchanged for love. And love leads us to be like Jesus, this sense of kenosis, to to be able to be poured out for the sake of others, to stand in the gap, to be living intercessors, to work alongside God for the redemption and restoration of others. So what do we do with this today? What's our response? One thing, easy. It's the easiest assignment you're gonna get in the neck all over the whole series, right? Be in the moment. This may feel like the most non-spiritual application that comes out of a sermon, but stay with me, right? Remember, we are in New England, and what did we just come through? Winter, right? Winter for us feels like tangible suffering. 
And I was talking to somebody this morning and she said, oh, winter's my favorite. I'm like, well, then you're gonna hate this, you know, but whether or not you love or hate winter, we talk about it as suffering. Everything is bleak. The flowers, the leaves, they're all gone. The ground freezes. The sky is gray. It's cold. We isolate. We have to suffer snow and sleet and freezing rain. And the older I get, the more I suffer. But spring always comes. And sometimes spring is whoop. And sometimes it feels a little longer. It depends on if you have allergies or not. But seasons change. The sense of suffering leads to new tulips, new daffodils, new crocus, the bees and the chirping of birds, and the sun begins to warm the earth. At the end of the passage that I read this morning from Luke, it says, Then Jesus led them to Bethany and lifted his hands to heaven, and he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up to heaven. So they worshiped him, and they returned to Jerusalem filled with great joy. Once Jesus explained his suffering to those on the road to Emmaus, they worshiped him. For in that moment, they too understood their freedom from the fear of suffering. And many of you are suffering right now. And you're trying really hard to escape through maybe sanitizing your own condition, wrapping it up in medical jargon or plans, being polite and remaining silent, or overachieving, trying to be excellent, trying to be superman or superwoman. Stop. Just be in the moment. Allow God's presence through his creation to remind you of the promise that there is life after suffering, because Jesus went first. Over the next few weeks, Pastor Van will be helping us to see why suffering uh, is meant for, what it's actually meant for. But in the meantime, be in the moment. Be in the moment right now with God. And so here's your assignment. Today, this week, go outside. Look at spring. Sit in the sun, drive to beaver tail and sit and see the majesty of the ocean. Go to a park, smell a flower, take a walk and be in that moment. And while you do, worship God. Be in that moment and worship God. Spring is God's way of giving us a picture of resurrection that no matter what you face, new life comes out of suffering. That's what Jesus' suffering and death did for us. It broke the fear of our own suffering and death because in his resurrection, we are shown our own. So be in the moment. Choose a time purposefully, intentively to go out and be in the moment and worship and be reminded of resurrection.